2: Those experiences have been so important.
1: This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folks' 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts.
3: Hello, and welcome to The Breakdown the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories of bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time.
1: I'm Emma John, author, journalist, and all-round bluegrass novice.
3: And I'm Patrick McGonigal, fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band.
1: Today we're going to be discussing Bella Flex Drive, the uh, virtuosic instrumental record that has become a touchstone for modern acoustic music and has almost certainly influenced every bluegrass player who wants to break new ground today. Has it influenced you, Patrick?
3: Definitely. It was released in 1988. I was two years old. I did not listen to it when I was two years old. <laughs> my, my grandfather, who has very good taste in music, gave me three records uh, when I was a kid. He gave me uh, blue, this record, Drive, and the Bluegrass Sessions, Tales from the Acoustic Planet, Volume 2. And he also gave me Ricky Skaggs' Bluegrass Rules. And that was my introduction to bluegrass. And so I learned a bunch of stuff from those records and I thought I knew bluegrass and I showed up to a lesson with Matt Glazer, who was the founder of the string department at the Berkeley college of music and an incredible, uh, fiddle educator and, and, um, promoter of roots music. But I waltzed into his office in my first lesson with him and I very proudly told him that I played bluegrass and I played up and around the band or down in the swamp or something. And while he said, those are great tunes, he said, you don't actually know bluegrass. That's very modern bluegrass. That's not indicative of what makes bluegrass bluegrass. And of course, he then pointed me towards Kenny Baker and, and you know, Chubby Wise and those guys. Um, but anyways, this was the first record that I really got into with these instruments and uh, totally changed my life. So I love this record. I have a very special place in my heart for it.
1: I don't have a story as good as that, but I was first told to listen to this record by a banjo-playing boyfriend.
3: There it is. It's a, it's a record of the heart.
1: So, for those who don't know anything about Bela Fleck, mm-hmm. do we want to just go back and uh explain who he is and why he's so important in the music?
3: Yes. So, Bela Fleck um I mean, Bela Fleck came up in the in the 70s. He was a teenager and as a teenager, he was already incredible. He was living in Boston and playing with a band called Tasty Licks. Great band name. And uh and he was he was studying with with Tony Trishka also, who was uh it lives in New Jersey now, but I think they were in New York at the time. And he just very quickly by his early twenties became the modern banjo player. So he was in Newgrass Revival um with his friend Sam Bush and Courtney Johnson and John Cowan and Pat Flynn um not all at the same time but uh and then he
1: and this was a band that was like looked rebellious felt rebellious felt like a whole new direction in bluegrass music
3: yeah and was was also a band that was not afraid to take very long extended solos that just went totally crazy on bluegrass instruments um i guess you could say it's the beginning of the jamgrass scene that is now you know sam bush has remained the king of for 30 plus years but then um so, Bela was making records like, like that with Newgrass Revival. He also had a bunch of solo records, um, which from the beginning always had the, the great players on them. You know, Sam Bush is on almost all of them, Mark O'Connor and Stuart Duncan and Jerry Douglas and Tony Rice. They're all on these records from the very beginning, um, like Crossing the Tracks and Daybreak and, and, and that. But so then he makes this record in '88, um, which is a great kind of as we were saying touchstone acoustic record that is not just a great banjo player record but it's not doesn't sound like it's just a banjo record the banjo doesn't play the melody every time he passes it off to the fiddles or the or Jerry Douglas or Sam Bush often play the 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 melody and um, the banjo is not always mixed super heavy so it really comes across as a record about great compositions great playing uh, by everybody
1: we've been lucky enough to be able to talk to Baylor about this record Uh, and also to catch up with two other members of the band, Jerry Douglas and Mark Schatz at a recent festival, the gray Fox festival in upstate New York.
3: And we, we, uh, we pulled them away into a little, little trailer that was backstage, uh, and interviewed them. And they were both gracious enough to take time away from their very busy schedules to, to interview with us. Um, I think Jerry Douglas went pretty much right from our interview, straight on to stage.
1: So we've got their memories of recording this album, but more importantly, we've spoken to Bela Fleck, and it feels like he's that's somewhere we should start by hearing from him. Did you think Drive was going to be defining at the time, or...?
4: I thought it was going to be a good record. I thought it was a very safe record to make for considering the records I had was making at the time. I had already made deviation, and um, uh, I was thinking uh, of doing things that were really wild and modern. I wanted to break out and be adventurous and do but I had never done a, a, a record with those guys, and I had played on a Tony Rice a few tracks on his cold on the shoulder record with Sam and tony and and uh, and Jerry and I think uh, Vassar was on those tracks and Todd Phillips, but I thought wow, nobody's ever had a, ba- a band like this has never made um, an instrumental record that I can think of. This, The way I could click in and, and groove with Tony and Sam uh, as a rhythm section together and the way Jerry played, I mean I, he was always my favorite and, You know, musician anyway I just had this idea that it would be a great thing to do but it, but it wasn't, I, I didn't expect it to be what it ended up being i I thought it was i thought it would go well i was excited to do it but i sort of felt like maybe i was copping out a little bit i wasn't really being as idealistic and wild and free and crazy as as maybe you know i had been trying to move in that direction um cutting edge i was really important to me at the time but a lot of times that'll happen you know people will we'll do something like that. And because they're not trying to be so cutting edge, they're so in their comfort zone that they're really able to be themselves. And that's what, what happened. It turned into a nice nodal, nodal moment for that group of musicians where everybody got to sort of focus their energy into the tunes I had brought. And they could, were able to set me up real well. And it was like a, a nice uh, photograph of those people in a group context playing this kind of music they hadn't existed before so I just got lucky but I do remember we recorded the first song on the record first it was called uh, 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 Whitewater and yeah. we did we did a first take that was like holy cow it was like ridiculous and it, it was one of those ones that sped up so we were all like well, it sped up a little bit it was pretty great Tony was like that's pretty good let's put away the instrument it's time to go on I was like well, let's try it again so we went back in and we did it again and it was okay, but it wasn't as it wasn't as good. And we did four or five takes, six takes, seven takes. I think Tony said, Oh, let's go hear that first one again. We heard the first one again. It was like, Damn. We just were all we had it cranked up so loud we were and we were all like, Yeah, baby. I don't remember it, you know, being. I I remember being disappointed by how how it was received. It wasn't. It didn't get nominated for anything in the bluegrass uh, community. Nobody. uh, I don't even think I was able to get a review in Bluegrass Unlimited for it.
1: Because it was too jolly, too. I don't know. I just don't think it really. No, they
4: were they were reviewing things like that that other people did. For some reason, it just didn't get. It just didn't happen. I don't know why, I just didn't really...
1: You just weren't on your game with your publicity that year. Yeah,
4: I wasn't doing any publicity. I never did any, pu- you know, I was just... I was just really sort of disappointed. Um, so I'm glad that over the years it's turned out to be a lot of people's favourite thing that I've done, and, and it's still one of mine. I, mean, mm-hmm. I knew we had something when I when we started to record the first track. It was like, holy cow, this is some rollicking stuff. This is going to be
2: amazing.
3: starts off it's like it's like you can hear the engines turning up the whole thing it's like uh, but it's not it's like jet engines you can feel them like warming up and sam bush you know starts grooving and the chop starts hitting and the banjos pushing forward it's a great first track
1: so it is called drive and most of the tunes are pretty upbeat some of them incredibly up tempo and the most important thing about this record is is the groove and the rhythm.
3: As soon as you put this record on, it's like you want to be driving in a convertible down the California coast because it just you can feel this exciting energy. You just feel so good. I mean, that's what groove is. The other track on this record uh, that I think has really amazing groove is Down in the Swamp. and And it really starts with a groove that is so uh tangible and swampy. It's called down in the swamp. I, I you know, it's it is really swampy. Um and the, the tempo of it right off the bat is this perfect tempo that's not fast. It's not slow. It's not like medium tempo. It's this weird, dirgy, it feels like you're 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 trying to walk through a swamp and you're just being kinda of pulled by the weight of this, you know, icky, gooey material.
1: I love that song because nothing changes about the melody it's the same melody over and over again there's no clever solos there's no super um, pyrotechnics from any of the instruments a lot of the rest of the album is so showy yeah and is all about them really kind of demonstrating just how well they know their instruments this is a really simple tune uh and it's like a simple story whose narrative is so compelling mm-hmm. that um you, you don't need to elaborate on it and uh, it's only the change in tempo and feel and dynamic and all these other things around the notes the notes can just carry on mm-hmm. being the same
4: was very inspired by Irish music which I was really into at the time and um, there was a a period where I I had an Irish girlfriend and I would spend a lot of time over there and I loved the way the tunes would be just fine without any soloing and I thought we're always soloing 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 so that was my idea for that song was let's just groove it let's keep it you know uh, keep it slow and let's break it down and rebuild it halfway through and pick it up but I, I wasn't expecting the kind of guitar like, the, the rhythm guitar playing on that track is actually spectacular. And it was, there was a few things where Tony would bring something that you just could never have expected. That was one. I mean, the way he played rhythm on that track made the whole thing. Um, so, so I hope I mixed it loud enough for you to hear it, but it, it made the thing happen. Yeah. It made the thing happen. But we were all into Irish music, too, so I, th- I think it was kind of that idea of <clears throat> playing a bluegrass tune as if it was an Irish tune. Yeah. That was the idea of that. And it was something I wrote on the mandolin. So every once in a while I'll pick up an instrument, squeeze out a tune that's a little different because I probably, if I'd written that tune on the banjo, I wouldn't have thought it was good enough to record, but since I wrote it on the mandolin, I was kind of proud of it and and it ends up being a tune a lot of people like.
1: So that's some fascinating insight from Baylor. I mean, personally there's there's loads there that I'm interested in. Um, but I suppose the most obvious one to me, the one that I'd already thought about listening to the album is the Celtic influence. Um the Irish influence that, you know, I just feel like keeps coming up, especially the third track, Up and Around the Bend, has this real kind of tug of the forelock to his uh to Bluegrass's Celtic roots. To me, like the fiddle drones in that almost sound like an accordion.
3: double fiddles of 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 mark o'connor and stuart duncan playing together the harmonies that they're playing against each other in that intro really sounds like the illin pipes like the irish illin pipes to me the way that the the pipes have those drones that often give that kind of sound where there's sometimes like a major second or something like that
1: (laughs) that there are two fiddlers playing on this record at all and that they're both brilliant Stuart Duncan and Mark O'Connor is really interesting and proof of the pull that Baylor had even at that stage
3: for sure also I think probably the indecisive nature of having to choose between Mark O'Connor and Stuart Duncan in 1988 both of them were young and at the top of their game and playing the coolest stuff in my opinion that had been played on the fiddle um Just totally new and totally different. And so, of course, Bela just gets them both. And And gets them to play together. Gets them to play together and play off of each other. And I'm sure there was a little bit of healthy competition between the two of them. And uh, all those guys, they were playing together all the time. And they were playing on all the same sessions. And they were jamming. And they were playing festivals. So I, I do feel like this record is maybe the one that captures that the most. You can hear that they're friends. You can hear that they're just having a good time and that they're really good at playing with each other and specifically Sam Bush, Tony Rice, and Mark Schatz as a core rhythm section is' just unstoppably groovy and and forward propelling with all that drive and that's a that's really on on display on this record in an incredible way every track you know Sam Bush's chop is just undeniably fills your whole body with the need to dance as as Mark Schatz talks about.
5: There was a, a twin fiddle mm-hmm. up and around the band, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, that tune had such incredible groove to it. What yeah, bouncy, swingy. I remember. You know, it's I'm all about the groove and yeah. about you know putting life and movement and energy into music and uh, all that stuff felt really great. But I remember that particular that kind of tempo. It's, it's, yeah. There's a bounce that just makes you, you know, makes you smile and makes you body moving here, feet jump up and down so yeah. uh, and so those two guys trading licks and that it was just uh in the in the parlance of some of those old uh, uh there's some old gospel song they call supernal the other thing is there's a good vibe between all of yeah. these folks you know we always had fun together it was light and uh of course tony and and sam known each other since you know, way back, New yeah, Grass yeah, Alliance. Yeah. And uh, so that was an old relationship and uh, you know, we'd all kinda of come up together in, in ways. I think I played on one of our, Jerry's early CDs and Sam came up to Boston to play on uh, Crossing the Tracks, which is Baylor's first song right. record. Well, Bela, you know, I've uh, Bela got me my first job in a bluegrass band. Uh, I ran into him at a, at a old time jam session in Boston uh, back around 1976 or so. I was going to school at Haverford at the time, so I was back in for the weekend, and there was this old time jam, and there was this guy, Bela, who was, uh, you know, this good looking young kid. He must have been about 17 or 18 at the time, and uh, and he was, you know, he's always tried to do what was appropriate for the, you know, the situation. He wasn't playing a bunch of crazy stuff. He was playing the tunes. And, uh, you know, I was trying to learn the tunes and play along and, and fit in with his old time jam. And I was at a time when I was playing a good bit of mandolin and was trying to like improvise over fiddle tune chords. And uh, so he and I stuck around afterwards after it kind of cleared out, and I said, do you ever kind of just, you know, improvise over the chords of a fiddle tune or something? And he said, oh, yeah, I <laughs> do that sometimes. And I, 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 I can't help but think that there was a little twinkle in his eye when he said that. And uh, so I said, well, let's play something. So we, maybe we played Soldier's Joy or something. And uh, so he, we played the melody a time or two, and then he started playing that unbelievable kind of improvisational Fury. Was and I was, oh my God! <laughs> I suddenly felt uh, very chasin'.
4: I'm actually a Manhattanite. I grew up yeah. in New York City. And, uh, but I heard the banjo at my grandparents' house in Queens on on Beverly, the Beverly Hillbillies TV show, and it just blew me away. And then one day a banjo showed up, uh, just a coincidence. My grandfather found one at a flea market and said, "Oh, I'll get this for Bela." And I came to visit him, and there it was. And wow, I was 15. I never thought I could play a banjo. I was just was in love with it. But I, I never thought anybody could actually play one. I didn't know how anybody could do it. So. Um, so I was never going to go out and get one. Yeah. But they went and got me, and then I had it, and I couldn't put it down. So I got it when I was 15, and then by the time I was 17, I got out of high school. I went straight into the professional
2: world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What was your as a as a, as a New Yorker? What was your when you moved to the South?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What were, what were your first experiences? Of it like.
4: I loved it. I mean, I've been I've been touring already. I've been in bands I went down south. and I was always thrilled to get, I mean, even Washington, D.C. felt like the south. They had more of an accent down there and go play the Birchmere and be part of, you know, where the Country Gentlemen used to play and Steen were still playing. And, and I guess maybe the Tents were still playing there, too. And and then occasionally I get to go even further south to Kentucky uh, or, 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 um, or Tennessee to play, like, Buddy's Barbecue in Knoxville or... Or play some play the festival of the bluegrass in uh, in Lexington, and I I had a sense that there were some things I didn't really understand about banjo music that I really I didn't want to be a Yankee banjo player. There was a stigma uh, about Yankee banjo players not really knowing how to do it, you know. Yeah. And I, I really wanted I didn't want to be one of those, you know. I was I was actually looking for all the things that were. Um, that my teacher did that I could go find things to do that he didn't do so I could find out, I, so I could make my name for myself and not be an imitation of him, which I was at that time. I played very, very much like Tony Trishko, so I was trying to find a way and I thought, well, let me go work on really, really becoming a, a scruggs and a J.D. crow really. and so I moved to Kentucky partly for that reason, to play with guys that used to play with with Crow, Glenn Lawson and, and, uh, and Jimmy Goudreau and and I, I studied him, and I can't say it changed me into Crow, but it gave me a grounding that I didn't have in yeah. music overall,
1: because yeah. the
4: thing about those guys is they have a guy like Crow and the, and the kind of guys that he played with had tone and timing, and I mean, it's not just a blue; those aren't just bluegrass elements, they're musical elements, you know, you have drive and have feel and um, all these things I learned. They were the most important thing down there. Where up north, it was all about the notes. What kind of cool, fancy, new thing could you come up with? Which was great. But I already had that in my back pocket, but I didn't have the feel and the time and the tone. And um, That was really stressed in Kentucky. So that was like a, a missing piece of, the, of my musical um, upbringing.
1: When do you feel like you started to develop your own voice? I mean, you were taking in all these different influences and, yeah. and searching them out. When did your voice start to emerge
4: I started making a concerted effort um, to stop sounding like Tony Trishka uh, at a certain point and there was there was a day when um, I was uh, at a party with Tony and we were playing and someone came over to me and said you know I was in the other room and I heard you guys playing and I couldn't tell which one was you and which one was Tony and I was so proud of myself there for a little while and then it occurred to me yeah but he's the guy who started all this stuff and plays all this stuff I, if I sound just like him um, that's not going to work in the long haul for the long haul is it you know and I had to get real with myself and I had to actually divorce myself from some of the things that he did or at least try and look at the things that he maybe didn't do um, try and find some things and they were hard to find because he was so good still is like what can I find and I was like okay he plays a lot of Reno stuff and he plays some jazzy stuff but he doesn't have all the scales up and down the neck like a jazz guitar player would. Maybe I should work on that. You know, maybe there's some areas where he'll delve into something and do a little something but he hasn't gone deep in that particular area. He's gone deep in this area so I'm not going there. That sort of thing. Yeah. And I actually look for the things. And then I thought about the sound. I didn't want people to go, oh, there's Tony. Oh, that's not Tony. That's a student. Baylor who sounds like him. So moving to the south, buying an old banjo like Earl's um, I had a teacher who told me, if you want to be a real banjo player, you got to have a real banjo. There's a lot of snobbery around those banjos, and I was able to get a hold of uh, a flathead 75 from 1937 or somewhere around then, and and make that my sound, a yep. more southern sound. And I was trying to like really be traditional on some songs and really really be jazzy. I hadn't didn't have a my own full concept really. I was just like, I in fact when I moved. Kentucky I had a friend named Steve Cooley who's a great banjo player who who had the record and he said well it's funny it's like on one record you sound like this banjo player on another cut you sound like another guy and it's like you're a different guy on each track and I've thought about that I was like well I want to be the same guy on every track I don't want it to sound like like I'm just each song is different I want it to be a kind of music that's uh that holds up together
1: yeah
4: that took a while that takes a while to figure that kind of stuff out
1: Tyler Fleck has said that uh, when it comes to composing music he thinks of it like songwriting Mm. Um, and I think there are certain tracks on this record that to me where the instruments are almost like speaking um, I definitely think that about uh, The Lights of Home which is an incredibly moving track where there's this plangent dobro solo. just kind of like, you know, reaches into your heart and gives it a swift squeeze.
3: I can attest to Emma's feelings for this song because she was tearing up as we listened to it earlier today.
1: I can't work out what, what the feelings mean, but I think there's a sense of yearning in it. But there's also a sense of yearning fulfilled.
2: Mm hmm.
3: also we have to talk about sanctuary because sanctuary is as a fiddle player that's a moment in time um it's an interesting tune we were just listening to we we gave the the record a quick listen through before starting recording of the podcast sanctuary doesn't really have much of a melody i mean i feel like Bela really wrote a banjo tune with that one
1: yeah you would have struggled to impress mac glazer with this
3: yeah it, it's a lot of it's just a lot of banjo chords which you know a lot of banjo tunes are just banjo chords, but it's they're cool chords, and and it's it's fun to listen to, and everyone gets to take very expressive solos, because I don't think anyone really knows what the melody is. But then Mark O'Connor kind of steps up to the plate and plays one of the most legendary fiddle solos of all time. Maybe also plays the highest notes that have ever been heard in bluegrass. Bluegrass is famous for its high notes. (laughs)
1: got a really interesting backstory as Jerry Douglas told us about so we've managed to catch up with Jerry Douglas at gray Fox
6: that's a hard thing to do
1: <laughs> you're a busy man
6: I'm a busy man okay okay this better not take very long <laughs> no it could take as long as you want
1: tell us what you were just telling us about drive
6: well uh, I'm I was saying that it was a very happy I was happy to be on the record and knew it was going to be brilliant because it was Bela, you know, and, and the people that were in town at the time were all living in town and our whole squad for that recording were we were all playing on each other's records with Mark O'Connor and Stuart Duncan and Sam Bush and Edgar Meyer and Mark Schatz and the whole shooting match, you know, uh, uh, Vassar Clements. And uh, there, were, there were all these people living in town and... and we were always playing together either at the station in or out on the road or on records together and then bail put this uh this drive concept in front of us and i couldn't there was a lot of the sessions that i couldn't make live i couldn't because i was on the road with allison and uh either allison or the whites i can't remember what year what that was I think it was before Allison. Was 88? That's right, '88. Yeah, way before. Yeah, so I was on the road with the Whites and Pete Rowan and people like that. But I was also going through a divorce, so I was in pieces all the time. And you know, and and but Baylor was very patient with me, and he knew what I was going through. You know, it's just a bad time for me, but. You can't hear it on the record. I mean it sounds fine. <laughs> you know, and that's partly him, you know, putting things together, you know, but but the, it was I remember it being a really, really dark for me. And when the record came out, by the time the record came out, you know, all that stuff was over with and it was all big celebration time and everything. But at the time we cut the record, I was in the I was in the in you know, under the jail. I was I mean, I was I was feeling so bad. Depressed.
1: So it was the best of times; it was the worst of times.
6: As Charles, <laughs> we King cried, said. we laughed, <laughs> we mostly cried.
3: <laughs> and what was the, what was the vibe of the session? What was the general? I guess you weren't oh, in that. Well, session. a lot.
6: Of, I was. Uh, some world. of them, uh, like uh, there was one song called "Sanctuary." Right. That I was, I was there for that one, and it was just a like, Mark. O'Connor and Stuart Duncan both playing fiddles and just yeah. going wacky crazy. I mean, just, they were so good. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys are so good and I haven't heard anybody even even now, you know, come up to that level yeah. of, of what was going on in that record. It was just magic you know it was like the air you know the notes and meeting in the air that kind of thing in the studio and we were just having such a good time with each other we're all such good pals you know And there was all this camaraderie you know and them helping me through it you know
4: Was having some kind of an identity crisis at the time. He didn't think he was playing very well, and so he was. But he was just <clears throat> feeling kind of very down in the dumps during the session. And and I would just we just took our time and made sure he had what he
2: you know, had playing he wanted on the record. with we, we didn't rush through it.
6: When you play, everything goes away. I mean, just getting me in there was hard. It was hard, and I was so depressed. Uh, but when I got in there and I started playing, all that stuff was gone. You know, so I get. I imagine that's why the records, my mm-hmm. parts sound okay. You can't hear it, but I mean, they, because it wasn't there when I was playing. But as soon as I would stop playing and go out in the hall or something, it would all hit me all over again. You know, so it's mm-hmm. like it, you could, I could never get a I could never get a good foothold on it. Bad times. Mm-hmm. But um, Sanctuary was. Uh, was amazing to me because I was watching these two world, you know, the top of the world fiddlers going at it and they were, it was just nuts. And, um, and then right at the end of the take, we ran out of, we ran out of tape. We played, the song went on so long that it ran out of tape and that and they, but they, and they spliced another, uh, piece of tape on the end. And we were, we were recording over, uh, a, another record that I had played on, a Leon Redbone record. And he had just used, you know, just reels, you know, just like 20 reels of tape. And they had, after that, we would just, you know, if they weren't using them, she, uh, the producer decided they didn't want to even take those tapes with them. So they just left them behind and Baylor got cheap tape. And so we recorded <laughs> over the Leon Redbone record, the outtakes that he didn't want. So right at the end of Sanctuary, if you really listen, you hear, and it's Leon Redmond. (laughs) So that's on the record.
2: That's incredible. He went
6: ahead and left it, but nobody really knew who it was. We figured that out later. Those two things go together, in my mind, about drive, and, and it was just so funny to hear this this cacophony you know of of these great fiddles and all this stuff and then they just kind of fade out and you hear
1: Did you know what you were going to play? Did you get a demo tape? Did you get
6: anything written? He, we would all we rehearsed. You rehearsed. We rehearsed before the record, and he would he would he would oftentimes just come to your house and rehearse one on one with you about parts, you know. And we did that for uh, Drive and Tales from the Acoustic Planet, you know, mm-hmm. just about all those Baylor records. And we we would work those a lot of it out, you know, the basic parts of it out before we would get in the studio, and then let the spontaneous stuff happen.
0: Mm-hmm. One.
5: person that was maybe the most mercurial as he is you know has always been in his career was was Tony Uh, Tony wasn't one to um, spend a lot of time working on working out arrangements or anything but he was really quick also so uh, you know once he knew the changes he was in there but uh, I think uh, sometimes it hadn't worked up like melodies as well as some of the other guys had so Bailey just worked around that. (laughs) <laughs> he just didn't really give him melodies to play. He would give him a long intro to play or something beautiful. Or, you know, take yeah. a solo over something like nobody else could.
4: about it as Tony, was a little bit intimidating for me, he was the magic, he was the magic in that music, like you could take him out of it and it would still be good, but with him there was a magic that came in that was hard to define, the way his guitar danced and it made us all feel when we played, it was glorious to play to, I have to say, but it wasn't perfect, didn't mean every take was usable, you know, everybody still had to play the song and get all these complicated things together, but I remember every time Um, he would do a solo he would do one solo and then put the guitar in the case close the case and latch the case and he's the greatest but there were lots of records out there where I didn't think he was playing that well probably because he did what he had just done so I would say Tony um, could you take another pass at that solo would you mind and he'd go Uh, what you want me to take another pass at the solo Uh, I just did one and I said yeah I know I know I just want to have a little another another shot, if you don't mind, which was very impertinent, but um, he did it, you know, and I got what I needed, you know, I got him to take a couple passes, so which we were all doing. It wasn't like we were all like playing it perfect, and then um, I was singling him out, like he was the he he wasn't concerned because he was such a live player. He 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 wasn't concerned with uh, being perfect or anything like that. But I knew I didn't. I wanted it to be more than just another. Tony Rice recording because he was on so much stuff I wanted it to be like where people would go and say wow like that's the Tony Rice you know recording you gotta hear
3: Acoustic Planet, because a lot of people, kind of, and myself included, see those as two kind of their their brethren. They share. They are. They are related.
6: And... Tony Rice was playing guitar, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, it's kind of the same same group of people, same band. Uh, I mean, they both ha- are bluegrass in nature, uh, more more acoustic in nature than than Deviation. You know, it's uh, but. There was something about drive that was innocent, you know, that what, like Tales from the Acoustic Planet is just like, okay, we've got this stuff down. This is what we do. But I remember Tony. On that record, Tony Rice was, he was in his phase of, uh, he, he, he had moved, he had quit driving Lincolns and he'd gone to like the Cobra uh, Mustangs that would go like 500 miles an hour, you know, and he'd go out to his car and listen to Miles Davis and smoke cigarettes in his car and then come back in and we'd take, do another take of whatever wow. it was we were doing. So he'd just go get in this mindset and he'd come back in, and it was the wackiest guitar mm-hmm. player you ever heard. I mean, he just brought it in the room with him, mm-hmm. you know. But it was like, you know, okay, we would finish the take, and Tony would just get up and take off, and we're just like, okay, yeah, I, well, I guess we can't do anything until he gets back. And Bale was fuming, and, yeah. and uh, you know, this is taking time. He's got a whole room full of musicians sitting there, but Tony's out in the car listening to Miles Davis.
1: Can you see its influence? Are there, are there things that you can point to now and say, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's how it influenced the music that came out?
4: Well, okay. let's look at it for a second. When we think about Drive. At the time it came out, it was pretty forward-leaning and pretty complicated for bluegrass music, but with a feel like like an old bluegrass band, like the, like the best bluegrass band you ever heard playing this new slightly new version. But now the people that built on that I've taken it to the moon and some of it I love and some of it I don't because I think it can be complicated just to be complicated but that became like a bible for the people like Chris Thiele's that were, were coming down the line that was that was they could get behind that and they could get behind the things I was doing <coughs> outside of bluegrass people started growing up and they were listening to drive and strength numbers and going well what do we do after that well we you know this is cool because it's complicated this is cool because it's fast let's go faster let's go more complicated I'm not saying everyone should do it like us I'm just saying we, we had a pretty good moment going there for a while.
1: And before we close, I came across an old interview of Baylor, which uh, I think really helps me understand this record even more. Um, Somebody asked him once, do you feel any pressure to constantly break new ground? And his answer was, definitely. It's almost like I made a deal with the banjo when I started playing it, and I really owe it. Wow. And I think, to me, that is sort of sums up why he continues to be so groundbreaking Mm -hmm. in everything he does.
3: And he has definitely uh, held up his end of that deal. He has. Of his career.
1: I think he should cut himself some slack.
3: Thanks to Jerry Douglas and Mark Schatz and Bela Fleck for taking the time to chat.
1: And until the next time, goodbye.